the sleeper in the bus. There's skill, there's luck. A keeper or cut. Open file, a case shut. A short stop or stop short. Press play or press abort. Intelligence for sports. Good of y'all to listen. Aiming at what truth is. Mike and Eno pitching like the name is Michael Lewis. Others in the dust or left out to rust. Who's hitting? Who's missing? The sleeper in the bus. The sleeper in the bus. Hello out there in Fantasyland, and welcome to The Sleeper and the Bust. I'm Mike Podhorzer, and I'm joined today by Rotographs contributor David Weirs. And today we'll be discussing perhaps the best pitcher on earth and the debut of a top-catching prospect. And we'll start things off with the most interesting player alive today, and that is none other than the best pitcher on earth, or perhaps the best pitcher on earth. We'll find out what you think, Mr. Weirs. And that's Clayton Kershaw. He is a 180 ERA and a .85 whip. I feel like this might be one of the best, well, at least on the surface, best pitching seasons we've had in a while. But we haven't had a, a sub-2 ERA in in many years. I, I don't remember the last year. But do you think that there's a chance that he can post a, a sub-2 ERA and finish the season with that mark? Yes, and as bonkers as that is, what he's done to date is pretty insane. Because it's not just that, yeah, he's got a 1-8 ERA. It's that he's done it over 191 or 190 innings. So he would have to have like back-to-back-to-back starts before his ERA really rises a considerable amount. Yeah, he has to have back-to-back-to-back starts of allowing three runs in seven innings. Three runs for Clayton Kershaw? That would be outrageous. Yeah, like which which is kind of on the face of it, outlandish to say. But that's the kind of numbers that Kershaw is basically putting up these days. He's given up three runs, one, two, three, four, five, six times all season. He's given up three or four runs, nothing more than four runs. Yeah, I just, it's just insane. And honestly, his strikeout rate isn't as amazing as it has been in past years. It's still above 25%, but he's just getting it done all over the board. Like, he's just inducing weak contact. Yeah, his batting average balls of play is 230, but... There's a fine line between what the pitcher does with his BABIP and what his fielders do. It's, it's like the Jared Weaver effect or the Matt Cain effect. It's, it's like that. Yeah, dare I say that this is the same Kershaw as always, just a bit luckier? Am I going to get like killed in the comments for saying uh, that? I hope not, because I would agree with you. <laughs> I mean, look at this. You, you said he was inducing weak contact, which is... Always the assumption when you see a 231 BABIP, but his line drive rate is actually at a career high at 22%. And obviously, line drives go for hits most often of all the batted ball types. And his pop up rate is at, actually at the lowest of his career. So that usually would signal a higher BABIP than normal. And yet, he's sitting here at a career best of 231. I, I honestly genuinely want to know what he does to prevent hits on balls and play at such a great degree that he does. Because if you just look at the traditional metrics that we do, it's not obvious. So mm-hmm. I, I just don't understand how he does it. And then you look at his home over fly ball rate. It's always significantly below the league average. What is he doing here? Because obviously in over a thousand innings, we can't just be like, oh, he's just been the luckiest pitcher in baseball. Obviously he's, I, it seems like it's a combination of him being great and lucky. Which is possible. Somebody's got to be the luckiest pitcher in baseball. But I think it would be uh, a good idea to do a real deep analysis on him. Not me, of course, because I don't have those types of 
pitch FX skills, but if somebody else smarter than me could do that, I, I want to know what Clayton Kershaw does that separates him from other pitchers and, and year in and year out prevents hits on balls and play, prevents home runs on fly balls, etc. Mm-hmm. Well, as, as we noted, like, yeah, it's a 231 BAPIP right now, but his career is below 270. And sure, Chavez Ravine plays into that a little bit. Playing in the NL helps a little bit. A lot of those NL West parks are awfully pitcher-friendly. But there's two parks in the NL West that are absolutely not pitcher-friendly. So you're getting, like, you know, half the starts at home, and then half the starts on the road are bad. Half the starts on the road should be very friendly to him. So it should even out to a certain degree. And this year, it's like the stars are kind of aligning. And when you take, you know, his talent level at A multiply it by having a luck factor of B, you get sweet mother, this guy is ridiculous right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you look at his career better ball distribution, line drive, ground ball, and fly ball rates, they're essentially league average. He does, he has allowed uh, pop-ups at a slightly higher than league average rate, which is good, but just that better ball distribution alone does not explain that low BABIP. So again, I, obviously I don't want to just label it luck, but I, I'm really curious to find out what Kershaw does. I mean, obviously, I'm probably going to yell that, oh, do you watch the games? His stuff is amazing, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of pitchers have great stuff, and they don't have career 267 BABIP. Right. So I want to know what this guy does. The most amazing thing, I think, possibly for Kershaw, is that control progression. Because if you recall, in the minors, his control was not good. And when he first came up in the majors, he was – allowing a, a walk percentage above 10%. And he's basically improved that, not completely linearly, but if you graph it, he's basically improved upon that control nearly every single year. And this year, his walk rate is below two. I mean, that's been the most unbelievable pro- well, progression in terms of Kershaw's skills. Right. Like his first three years, 08, 09, and 10, he had 11, 1, 13%, and 9.6 walk percentage. And then he basically cut it in half now. It's at 5.5%. So to see him just make that, as you said, progression is, it, it, it's like watching a kid grow up literally and, and kind of figuratively, you know what I mean? It's just like, oh my God, he's he, he's putting it together. He's learning to walk. These are his steps. <laughs> At least that's what I imagined, but I don't have any kids, so, you know. This is true. <laughs> and if he's not one of the better examples of ignoring wind, then I don't know who is, because, for example, Kershaw, with his 180 ERA, has 12 wins, and yet Lance Lynn, with his 389 ERA, yes, it's two full runs more that he's allowed. Lance Lynn has 13 wins. He has an extra win for that. Well, I mean, that's got to give him the Cy Young at that point, right? Oh, of course, which is why there should be no contest in the AL. Max Scherzer, 17-1, given the award right now. <laughs> well, Max Scherzer could win it, but it'd be... In, in... Despite his wins, you know, it's just like, well, he's that he's that good. Yeah, um, let me just backtrack a little bit. You cited line drive a couple of times. Are you a big subscriber to the accuracy of the line drive rate? Uh, I mean, yeah, obviously there's some stringer bias here and there. But, uh, I mean, that would explain the difference between maybe 18 and 19%. But, I don't know. I mean, do you just throw it out the window? You just I use ground ball fly ball ratios and ground ball percentages because those are impossible to confuse with each other. 
Uh, like, I don't want to. I don't want to assume that the people at BIS are like, you know, oh, that's a fliner, so we're gonna flip a coin and call it a line drive. Like, I love that word, a fliner. Oh god, that that's up there in the baseball lexicon of things I hate with like RBIs and grit and things like that. Like, it's just so and grit. Come on, David Eckstein. <laughs> Dude has a World Series MVP, so I should shut up. That's right. <laughs> uh, I, it's just one of those things, like. If we can cut down on any potential errors and bias that we already know of and that we know exist, like to cite those to me just seems a little silly. So I do I go out of my way to never cite like line driver. I'm like, oh yeah, well he has shown a marked improvement in his ground ball fly ball ratios because his ground ball percentage is up to fifty five percent. And I'm just like throwing hypotheticals out, but that's just kind of how I view it. It's one of those things where like I know it's an iffy number, so I'm very hesitant to throw it around. All right, well, speaking of errors and screw-ups, why don't we talk about replays? Mm. So if you've been living under a rock, which if you're listening to the podcast, you probably are not living under a rock. Mm-hmm. And so you are familiar with the fact that Major League Baseball in the offseason is to be voting on an expanded replay. And uh, the rules right now, one challenge in the first six innings, two more from the seventh on, and if the manager wins the challenge, he does not lose it. So what was your initial reaction to the whole expanded replay and how they plan to actually execute the rules on the first go-around? Uh, I think it's far too late. Like, I mean, like not late as in, oh, well, it's too little too late. It's just like, why didn't we do this, like, 12 years ago? Yeah. That's... That's what I don't understand. Like, okay, I'm an A's fan. So everybody remembers in the playoffs when Jeter did that flip play back in 01 with Giambi who didn't slide and blah, blah, blah. Things like, like, Giambi was safe. Like, that's just the way it is in my opinion. Like, why why couldn't we have had that a decade and change ago? Well, I don't know why baseball is so slow to change. Like, everyone was clamoring for it. Like, the technology was there. The want was there. And yet we're just like, well, we're going to have a meeting on it. Then we're going to vote on it. And then we're going to vote on voting on it. And then (laughs) the owners will vote on it. And I'm like, God, people, like, just send out a mass text message. Be like, hey, bro, this is a good idea. Give it a go. Green light. Like, it would take literally 10 minutes for everyone to check their phones. Be like, yeah, you know what? That's a good idea. Our fans deserve better. And moreover, the fans have access to seeing that the umpires are in fact wrong. Like there's been instant replay in the NFL for how many seasons now? So for the baseball to finally come around on it, I'm, I'm happy it's here, but I'm just bewildered as to why it took so long. Yeah, I'm happy. It's like finally, it's about time that this is actually happening. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's all kinds of problems with the system that they're going to put in place. Yeah, they say, oh, we're going to start with baby steps and then we're going to improve it. Why start with baby steps? Why have any bad calls? Why give them a limited number of challenges? And then all of a sudden, now the the challenge strategy becomes another thing that a manager has to worry about. Oh, should I use my challenge now? It's only the first inning. What if there's another bad call that makes a, a, a bigger impact on the potential outcome of the game in the sixth inning. Should I waste it now? But if I'm wrong, it's so stupid. How about any bad call, you challenge, a limited challenge. I understand from baseball's perspective that they don't want the managers to abuse it. They, they worry about the, the time of the game. But come on. If a call is wrong, it needs to be looked at in overturns. Yeah. It's as simple as that. 
And it was like, again, I think football is kind of where it's getting right, where like every scoring play is reviewed no matter what. And there's, there's certain quirks about that, but why can't every play in baseball be under review? Because every play in baseball is just as important as every play in football. It it just blows my mind that they're going to be like, all right, well, we're going to kind of dip our toe in the water because we're not really sure how it's going to go. I'm just like, man, it takes longer for all four umpires to meet in the middle than it would be for them to phone upstairs to a booth and the guy in the booth would be like, oh, yeah, dude's out by five feet. You you blew the call. Yeah, and seriously, we're yeah. watching at home. They always play the replay. Literally within three seconds, we know if the call was blown or not. Yep. I don't get how it takes minutes for the whole thing to go through the entire process on the field to overturn the call. If we can make a judgment within three seconds, why does it take forever on the field? There should be no reason that it extends the game to such a significant degree, especially because you assume that if they weren't going to have that replay, the manager's going to come out and start arguing anyway, and that's going to take the same amount of time. Yeah. Like, I think this will actually move games along. That's what I think. Yeah, and... At the very least, I think this is going to be great for us fantasy owners because we don't have to be so stressed out and cursed at the umpires for making bad calls against our pitchers. <laughs> oh, no, I'll, I'll still do that. It's just <laughs> I have nothing else to blame at that point. So. And I think the crazy thing is, is I, I read in the article that Major League Baseball has determined that there's basically one blown call every five games. That is complete BS. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have the extra innings package, and I watch baseball every day, mm-hmm. and... There seems to be at least one blown call in nearly every single game. Every five games? No way. Got to be at most every two games. Yeah. Um, the funny thing that I took away from that is, uh, and I'll quote the article, reviewable plays will cover 89% of those incorrect calls that were made in the past. How do they figure out it was 89%? <laughs> like, what, what, what kid in the back office looked at every blown call over the past 60 years and was like, you know what, that was a blown call, but that next one wasn't. Yeah, so and the one and make sure that it's like, what? How did you come across that number? I, show your work. This is like and, algebra. Show your work. It's not even every blown call. Some that that kid in the basement has to look at every single play to first determine if the blown call, and right. then figure out, oh, is that going to be a type of call that you can have a replay on? Yeah, like if I got that job, I'd be like, I'd hear the job parameters. I'd be like, okay, sounds good. I'd go down to the basement. I'd write a number. Then I would take a nap for the rest of the day. And I'm like, oh, yeah, hey, bud, bro, it was 89%. Thanks. Right. Obviously, then you come up with a high number that's not round because 90% seems fake. 89%, that seems reasonable. So we'll go with 89. Yeah. <laughs> it, he probably gave him the options. Things like, well, it could be 89. It could be 90. We'll go with 89. It sounds more realistic. Yeah. I'm just like, what? There's so much that I don't understand and so much more that I want. That this is like weirdly unsatisfying. It's like after a hot day, you don't you find out that there's no water in your fridge, so you have to like drink it from the tap. And it's like, ugh. Yes, it's water, but it's only like tap water. Like it's just a taste of it. It's not what you really, really want. Are these the problems that you face in everyday life? It is. I I, I lead a tough life. <laughs> All right. So last night, Dan Harron recorded the save in the Nationals extra inning game against the Braves. So my question is, have the Nats found their new closer to replace Rafael Soriano, who's suffering from a bout of homeritis? 
I mean, Dan Heron doesn't exactly have the uh, <clears throat> velocity that you would like to see from a closer. But uh, I don't think Rafael off. Soriano has the velocity either anymore. <laughs> touche, touche. <laughs> but I mean, if homeritis is is your worry, then uh, Heron does have uh, a mild tendency to have a case of the gopher ball too. Yeah, I'm not gonna argue against that. All right, so Michael Barr wrote a good article about Heron the other day. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it? Yesterday. Two days ago. And uh, he pointed out a different pitch mix. And uh, a commenter and Math Ninja, I like calling people Math Ninjas. That's what I call uh, Steve Stodd from Fangraphs. Uh, Dan Rosenson linked to an article stating that the change in splitter speed that Michael Barr referenced was actually intentional. And it was to create a greater difference in velocity compared to the fastball. And the thing is, is that when I watch Dan Heron pitch, I do note that his pitches basically all have the same velocity. His, his fastball is only 89 and basically peaks at 90, and his slowest pitch is only like 82. If that's the difference between your fastest and your slowest pitch, 8 miles an hour, that's just not big enough. I mean, right. Dan Heron used to throw in the low 90, so if he was throwing 93, maybe 94, and then 82, that's fine. But 89 and 82, that's just not a big enough difference to really – make hitters, you know, off balance or, or, or whatever, and, and maybe that has led to his home run problems this year. It's like the Barry Zito, like, Exhibit A. Like, Zito for a long time sat in, like, the low 90s, and then he got to the low, or got to the mid-80s, and then, oh, cool, your four-seam and two-seamer are suddenly now five miles per hour faster than your changeup, and he got <laughs> torched. And that's just, you, you need somewhat of a separation, and I'm not a professional hitter by any means. I'm not even an amateur hitter. I'm an aspiring dilettante of an amateur hitter. Could have fooled me. <laughs> but it would make sense. I'd be like, if you can time one swing around, you know, a very small subset of velocities, then you're going to be locked in and you're going to look for one pitch and you're going to drive it into the wall or over the wall. And that's what we had been seeing. So like you and that article and the brilliant bar said, yeah, this, this splitter change is has been excellent for him, and it's been working for him, more, most importantly. And it's interesting because I've read some speculation, or I've heard, I don't remember if it was Eno that speculated on a previous episode of the podcast or wherever, but the speculation being that when a pitcher loses velocity and, and they then are in a transition phase to, to figure out how they can change up their pitch mix to continue to succeed without that fastball, and it seems like maybe Dan Harron's transition is taking something more off of his splitter. And earlier in the season was the transition figuring out how to continue to be successful with the the, the worst fastball. Now he has figured it out, and now he can return to being a, a good pitcher. He has a 225 ERA since returning from the DL in July. Do you think that that's maybe uh, the explanation and that Harron could keep up this success and, and maybe be the Dan Harron of old? I don't know if we'll ever see the Dan Harron of old, per se, because his second half bad and average balls in play is... 202. So we got to kind of group everything together. But in that same regard, since it, since the second half, or almost his DL break, uh, he's been striking out more batters. His strikeout per nine is above eight, and he's still not walking anyone. His uh, walk to strikeout ratio is actually down even 5.0. So there's things that are encouraging, absolutely. I mean, a 24% strikeout rate is nothing to scoff at, but he is getting a little bit lucky in the batted ball department. I think. <laughs> I think his true talent's somewhere around, uh, I would say, like a high threes ERA, like a 380 ERA. 
right in that area. <laughs> That's the exact number that was in my head at the moment. <laughs> Great minds, Mr. Pyhorst. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, I was thinking that basically in the first half before he went on the DL, he had some terrible luck. His BABIP was high. He was giving up a ton of home runs on fly balls. And since coming off of the DL, it doesn't seem like he's been pitching any better. It's just that his luck has improved. And, and that's the thing that I always say, you got to ignore ERA. You got to look at the skills. You got to look at his ERA estimators. His Sierra has basically been at four or below all season long. And now his luck is simply neutralizing. Yeah, maybe it took some bad opponents for that to happen. But that's what it seems like to me. It's just better luck after some bad luck earlier in the season. And pitchers go through this. Look at Edwin Jackson. Edwin Jackson's ERA was like 550 a couple of weeks ago. And now I think it's finally below five. But the fact is, Edwin Jackson has been the same pitcher as he's always been. He just had bad luck. Now he's had better luck. And his ERA has come down. Now the biggest thing to worry about with Harrim is he's suddenly an extreme fly ball pitcher. And it's not like he strikes out a ton of batters to begin with. So he's going to have major home run problems. And that's why his Sierra is higher than it's been um, during his peak years. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I mean, 111 strikeouts to only 23 walks – it's very difficult to not have success with that strikeout-to-walk ratio. Right. Well, even even like you said, this year is higher than his previous form. His current year is 3.70, and if his ERA happened to match that, then he goes from being, you know, waiver-wire fodder that he was earlier in the year to being like, you know what, this guy's not even a spot starter or a stream candidate. I'll, I'll roster him at that point. Absolutely. Yeah, plus he'll have a probably a beneficial whip as well. Mm-hmm. So he'll help in the ratio categories and uh, be a decent strikeout guy, especially because if he's not giving up a ton of runs. I mean, he used to be uh, an innings eater and throw a ton of innings, so he should be somebody that you feel comfortable going seven innings every start and getting you know six, seven strikeouts or so. I'd be very comfortable penciling him in for that. Yeah, absolutely. Plus, I believe that the Nationals actually have a pretty easy schedule the rest of the way. And at this point of the season, it's very important to look at a, an opposing uh, a pitcher's opposing uh, lineups mm-hmm. because I mean, with only like seven starts left, seven eight starts left, uh, that can make a big difference if you're pitching in Colorado or, or facing uh, the Tigers versus facing the Marlins and the Cubs and then the Giants. I mean, that that's going to make a big difference. Absolutely, I agree. All right, let's move along to the debut of Travis Darno uh, in New York, who it's been a guy that we've eagerly awaited as a Mets fan to not only return from his broken foot, but basically the question is, when is John Buck going to disappear? <laughs> I mean, he's disappeared <laughs> since, since April because he's done nothing since then. <laughs> Which shouldn't really surprise anyone, because, I mean, John Buck has plenty of power, it's just he has almost no contact skills. Yeah. And I actually, I don't really remember him, is he a, a decent defensive catcher? Like, I what? have no idea. No? Okay. It's just one of those things where, like, okay, the, prior to our Darno being called up, is, am I saying that right? Darno? Yes. Darnod? If you are Eno, you would pronounce it Darnod. Okay. But well, you know... So you're gonna I, say I aspire to be Eno in everything I do, including my hairstyle. So I will say Darnod. Oh my god, if you had Eno's hairstyle, you would be like the first Asian to do Asians don't have curly hair, do they? Uh my sister has kind of curly hair. 
but it's, it's not it's not like can I say like white people curly hair? No, yes, you, you can. Know? Yeah, like, it's not quite like that. Yeah. I say it's just not the straight you know uncooked spaghetti like my hair would be. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. But wait, where where was I? Okay, right, right. Darno, Darnod. <laughs> Darnod. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go back and forth between these, so just bear with me on this. Uh, prior to his call up, shall we say, the two cu- primary catchers were who Anthony Recker and John Buck. Anthony Recker has the name to be an amazing player because if your name your last name is Recker, mm-hmm. I mean it, it's kind of like Justin Smoke, where you're born to smoke the ball or wreck the ball. So <laughs> it's a disappointment that Anthony Recker isn't like a top catching prospect. 2080 on Recker's name. Anthony Recker, Recker is great, but Anthony, it doesn't do a whole lot for me, so I would give it a 55 name, an, an above average name. <laughs> Scouting report on names. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that I would give him 55. You could probably talk me into 60 with upside, but it's probably going to be 55. All right. Maybe our commenters will be nice enough to give their thoughts on how good of a name Anthony Recker is. So Travis Darnod. Yesterday he debuted, he walked twice in four plate appearances, which is pretty good, but he allowed Padres base runners to steal three bases in three attempts and also had a pass ball, not good. But the big question is, is you know, he's obviously been called up because John Buck is a, a father. I don't know if he already had a kid, but he's on paternity leave now. Mm-hmm. And so the question remains, is Travis Darno up for good and does he become the everyday starter ahead of Buck or is he only up for these three days until Buck returns from fatherhood? I think it would be silly to call him up to send him down to call him up again in two weeks when rosters expand. So I really think that Darnod is going to be the guy to go from here on out because he's obviously the catcher of the future. Neither Buck nor Wrecker, as great of a name as that is, is really going to be blocking him like that, or at least they shouldn't be blocking him. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's not like we're concerned about that arbitration clock. If they kept him down, then they would get uh, an extra year of control. I mean, we're way past that. This is just a question of do they want to keep him up and have to uh, send somebody down once Buck comes up because rosters haven't expanded yet? Or are they going to option him back to to AAA and then bring him back up in September? Obviously, the Mets are going nowhere. And to me, it seems fairly obvious that Darno should stay up with the big club and be their starting catcher the, the rest of the way. I mean, I don't know why else they would have Buck starting. It it wouldn't make sense. For a team going nowhere, they got to give him the shot. Because Darno, I mean, he is the catcher of the future. And, and he's a guy who probably is going to duke it out to be the starting catcher next year. So why not give him a couple of extra weeks to, to, to see what he can do this year? Almost more than anything, just get him more experience. Like, this kid has had a ridiculous injury history. Just, like, he got hurt with Team USA a couple years ago. He has hurt earlier this year. Like, his career high for single-season games played is 126. And he's only been over 100 one other year. And it's just crazy. So I just I just want to make sure that he holds up well enough to actually be the catcher of the future. So why not give him seven straight weeks or six straight weeks or however many long weeks there are yet exactly to really prove himself and be like, hey, I can stick with this. I'm an everyday catcher. You can trap me out there five times a week without breaking a sweat. That's what I want to see. And then we can say that the Mets gave the nod to Darnod. Uh, Even if we pronounced his name correctly. <laughs> you had that one in your back pocket for like three seasons, didn't you? <laughs> uh, at least five minutes of this podcast. 
I'll, I'll give you a laugh and then a groan. How about that? Oh, thanks. If only I had a sound effect I can play. <laughs> so, assuming that he actually does stay up for the rest of the season, what kind of performance do you expect from him? Do you think he's worthy of, uh, let's say, a 12-team mixed league, two-catcher league? Is he a top 24 catcher? Even consideration for uh, a top 12 catcher if you're in a one-catcher 12-team mixed league. Uh, I touched on this a bit in today's Roto write-up. I think in single uh, standard catcher leagues, I don't think he's quite in that top 12 cusp just yet. But just about any format of two-catcher leagues, you, you got to pick him up. Like, his power numbers are very good, especially, like, if, you, if you're in a uh, on-base percentage league because he doesn't draw a ridiculous amount of walks. But this year, he has seen a sharp uptick in his walks. And like you said yesterday, he went 0 for 2 with a pair of walks. So he's showing that, hey, maybe his newfound plate discipline is for real at this point. Yeah, the good news also is that he's generally had high BABIPs in the minors. Uh, mm-hmm. He's obviously shown great power. So he is a guy who you should grab in basically any format. I think he is on the borderline of single catch or 12-team mixed leagues because once you get past like the top group, it basically seems like a crapshoot. I mean, let's say you put – I don't know if A.J. Przinsky would necessarily be a top 12 guy, but he seems like a guy who could potentially be top 12. And is there any guarantee that A.J. Przinsky outperforms Darno the rest of the year? I don't think so. So I think – Darno is definitely in that group, probably from 10 to 20 or so, that really it wouldn't be a surprise if any of those guys make it into the top 12. I think Darno is part of that class. Okay. Would, would you, you'd put him up there with, like, maybe who, like, Lucroy and Salvador Perez? Or no, like... um, Lucroy I definitely like better, but Salvador Perez, yeah, because I don't really like empty batting averages, especially over a small sample where batting average is more fluky, and if you're counting on a guy just for batting average who doesn't have a whole lot of power, i rather go for the guy who has either lots of speed or lots of power because those usually aren't as fluky in a small sample. And you can potentially get six home runs for Travis Darno, and maybe he, he lucks out with a high BABIP and he hits you 300. Salvador Perez, he can just get unlucky with the BABIP. You know you're not going to get much power from him. So right. uh, he can hit you 320, he can hit you three, uh, 270. And, and and you don't know, but you know it's not coming with power or great counting stats on a, a mediocre offense. Okay, very fair. Yeah, so so I think Darno is definitely a, a pickup in in the majority of leagues. Of course, this is all be moot if he just gets sent back down, and you have to wait again until September. But I think the Mets at this point are smart enough to make him the everyday catcher moving forward. I'm kind of operating under that assumption until like they say something else or make a move. So, yeah, I'd agree. All right, let's move along to the Orioles' bullpen. Because after Jim Johnson blew yet another save, Buck Showalter mentioned uh, something about him that he might not necessarily be the closer going forward. Uh, here was the quote. He said, we have a lot of options, and he's one of them. And this was August 16th. And I then picked up Tommy Hunter, I believe, that day or the following day for this very reason. Because Jim Johnson... I think a day later, pitched in a game that they were down like 8-3. He pitched one inning, clearly not a safe situation, and he allowed a home run. So Mm. that to me suggests that he's being temporarily removed. And right now, I guess the question would be, would it be K-Rod or would it be Tommy Hunter to replace him? But K-Rod now seems to be injured. K-Rod has been pitching earlier in games. So it seems like Tommy Hunter, right now, even though it hasn't been announced, 
is the official unofficial closer. What do you think? Um, I think that basically the law of averages is beginning to catch Jim Johnson because you're not going to be a top flight closer if you're only striking out like six people every every K for nine. Every K for nine is six. Like it just it just shouldn't be that way in 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 my mind at least. And his back to back seasons of last year and the year prior, 2011. He had a 268 and then 251 BAPIP. And then this year, he's, I wouldn't say he's getting knocked around, but it's taken a pretty sharp uptick to almost 320. Um, I think Johnson will still probably retain his closer role, but the Orioles, they're, they're in a dogfight for a playoff spot. I think they're three games back of the wild card right now, and they have to get their bullpen in order, otherwise, they're going to keep slipping out of the race. Uh, as for who it will be, it'll probably be Hunter. For a little while, but I think Johnson will eventually steady the ships to a minor degree, and he'll quote unquote earn the spot back. I wouldn't agree with that. I would keep probably Hunter there, and I don't even love Hunter that much. But that's just kind of my take on it. Yeah, I mean the thing with Johnson is is what you said. He's an extreme ground ball guy, and when the ground balls find holes, this is what happens. He's prone to the blow up. You don't really expect many home runs, though, because he's such an extreme ground ball guy. But he's not a big strikeout guy. His control isn't amazing or anything. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's just last year's good luck is the pendulum swings the other way, and now he's had some bad luck, and, and that's what happens with closers. But, yeah, Tommy Hunter I don't love either. I mean, I would have expected with a now 96-mile-per-hour fastball, I would have expected a lot more strikeouts. Mm-hmm. But he's striking out only 19% of batters, which is – it's a significant improvement from previous seasons, but still not what you would expect from a, a reliever throwing 96 miles an hour. And he also throws three pitches, so I don't really know. I expected more from Tommy Hunter, but he's been pretty good. I mean, a 346 Sierra is nothing special, though, from a relief pitcher. So I think he's been a bit lucky, and he, he's really not that great to begin with. Do you but, think, like, Darren O'Day gets a crack at any saves, or...? No, I think it's going to be Hunter. I mean, the only other option is K-Rod, but he has that groin injury, and we don't know how long that's going to keep him out for. It seems like he might be um, uh, able to avoid the disabled list. I feel like Darren O'Day, with his uh, side-arming ways, is probably not good against lefties. I'm bringing up his split. Yeah, Darren O'Day, a 401 Woba against lefties. <laughs> 401. <laughs> I mean that 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 would turn me into what? Who who is about four hundred one woba these days? I was gonna say Mike Trout, but Mike Trout is better than that. Let me let me go look it up. Let's see who has a four hundred one woba. Paul Goldschmidt. There we go. Wow. He takes everybody into Paul Goldschmidt. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. That's exactly who you want saving games for you, don't you? <laughs> the Tigers did that for years and years. Papa Grande. It's true, and they did the reverse when they tried to make Phil Cope the closer who can't get righties out. <laughs> also true. <laughs> so, I mean, my my thinking is that right now, even though Showalter hasn't officially announced it, is that Tommy Hunter is a closer. So if you need a closer, desperate for saves, I'm not saying that Jim Johnson won't eventually get his job back, but since they are in the thick of the playoff race— I feel like at this point they can't afford to continue to give Jim Johnson the ball, especially because the media is going to be all over them, of course. And and sometimes you wonder if the manager manages to win games or the manager just wants to appease the fans and and the media. Mm-hmm. But that was a big part of the book uh, Moneyball. Is like managers tend to make moves not based on what would be the best calculated move, 
but what would be the easiest move to explain. Yeah, and that's just stupid. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of stupid, let's move along to your favorite team. And <laughs> Brett Anderson, doesn't this kind of seem like an Adam Rosales situation? DFA'd by the A's, picked up by the Rangers. Released by the Rangers, picked up by the A's. Brett Anderson right now, you know, obviously he's been injured. What else is new? But oh. he's going to come back in the rotation. Oh, but then they're going to move him to the bullpen. Oh, but now he's back into the rotation. Make a decision, Athletics. What are you going to do here? Yeah, they've. is it possible to jerk someone around who's already an established starter who already signed a multi-year, multi-million dollar contract? Because that's kind of what's been going on with the A's and Brett Anderson. Like, yeah. he got sent down and then, like, or not sent down. He, he was injured and rehabbing. And then he had an interview with, I think, like, Susan Sluster or someone and said, yeah, I'd be willing to, you know, shift roles to a bullpen. So there's a big hubbub about that. And then Bartolo Colon hits the DL, and then instead of being scheduled to throw in the bullpen in AAA, yesterday Anderson actually started the game and was supposed to go three innings. So they're just kind of like building his arm strength to, clo- to start, but also being kind of mum on whether his role will be in the bullpen or not. And it's just more and more frustrations for my favorite team and one of my favorite pitchers to watch, because when he's healthy, Anderson is an absolute joy to watch. He works pretty fast, he gets ground balls, and he gets enough strikeouts to keep things interesting from a fantasy perspective. And the thing is, is that they called up Tommy Malone to take Cologne's spot in the rotation. So mm-hmm. where where is Brett Anderson even going to slide in, even if they decide, all right, we're back to plan A, he is in the rotation. I, he's not even going to pitch in the rotation. I, don't, I have no idea what's going on with Brett Anderson. I think they'll probably send down Malone or send down Gray, one of those two, because... Anderson probably is a better pitcher than both those guys right now. I'd be surprised if they sent down Sonny Gray. And I, I think Malone's going to be the odd man out just because he's just looked bad this year, which obviously, you know, analysis, hooray. But <laughs> that's just that's just my take on it. And I watch a lot of A's games, and he just has not looked very good. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine that it would be very difficult to send down Sonny Gray at this point, given how he's performed so far, especially, well, I guess last game was against the Astros, where I probably could manage a strikeout in inning against them. Man, let's make that happen. I really like. I just want to see Chris Carter hit like a 600 foot home run off of you. That's fine. I have Chris Carter in Tout Wars. That that'll be okay. <laughs> oh, so you just serve up a meatball to him? Gotcha. Perhaps. I don't know. You probably bring that 66 mile an hour heat. That he I might, can't uh... even throw 66. I I haven't. <laughs> I haven't done one of those, like, speed games at, like, Carnival since I was very young. But when I did, I think I peaked at, like, 50. It was I could probably do, like, with a crow hop, maybe hit 50 right now. Yeah. Maybe. We're, we're perfect examples of very in-shape people. <laughs> oh, but of course. But of course. So is Britt Anderson yet again going to head into next season – as a sleeper. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm going to go with yes. <laughs> yes. With shades exactly. of probably not. Is, is that okay? Or is that a huge cop out? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that until this year, he's always been good when he's pitched. The problem is, is he never pitches. Yeah. <laughs> so I, it's I, all about I, the health. Where where do you think you would draft him? Like In the reserve rounds? 20th round? No, I mean, he's going to be, once again, I think the thing is, is that this year he was a sleeper in the preseason because when he came back from injury, he actually 
did pitch well down the stretch. 35 innings, 257 ERA. Um, Great. But this year, his ERA is 621. So when he was on the field, he actually wasn't good. So it's going to be different. So he's going to be – and this is also the second straight year where he's had an injury marred year. And so I think he's going to come even cheaper. And in 12-team mix, he'll be somebody to get in the reserve round. And deeper, he's going to be cheap enough where there's going to be lots of upside. But he is cheap enough that you're really not spending much on him where it's not going to be a big deal if he gets injured and – you can just drop him. So he's going to be an intriguing choice next year in drafts, I think. Of course, I say this every single year, and <laughs> he never pitches and, and, and helps fantasy teams. So Mark, my words. Quote me on this. Brett Anderson, comeback player of the year 2014. Lock it up. Let's hope. Let's cross my fingers because he's been on my team many years, and I, I've been following him since the minors. So I'm hoping for you. I, I can't wait. I have his jersey. And I am going to wear it every night in the offseason. Every time I go to bed, I'm going to be wearing that jersey, just hoping and praying that he pitches 200 innings. And that'll provide the boost in his mind to stay healthy all year. <laughs> maybe maybe I'll tweet him a picture of it every night. So, no, I'll probably get put on a list if I do that. Never mind. I, I take that last part back. But you know <laughs> what I mean. <laughs> well, let's hope, because Brett Anderson could really help fantasy teams if he's actually pitching and healthy. Indeed, he could. And on that note, we're going to wrap things up. So join us again next Tuesday for more fantasy fun on The Sleeper and the Bust. For David Weirs, I'm Mike Podhorzer. Thanks for tuning in.